0: I'd like to begin our time with a serious and compelling statement. There is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. There is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. In fact, I don't know that the adjective big is big enough. I think... There is a vital difference. I think there's a catastrophic difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. And to see this point, I want to use the example of a man's life by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton started Youth for Christ back in 1945. And he served as the vice president for Youth of Christ for a number of years. He preached to more people than Billy Graham did throughout all of the crusades that the evangelist Billy Graham did. He went to seminary, although he denied the literal reading of the Bible. He believed in physicists anthropologists, geneticists, sociologists, and geologists who said there was no creation, no global flood, and no sin. Templeton even asked this question, how could a loving and omnipotent God create such horrors as we have been contemplating when reflecting on life? In the year 2000, Lee Strobel was doing research for his book called A Case for Christ, and Strobel interviewed Templeton. He cautiously brought the conversation to Jesus Christ. Templeton commented, He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I have ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. Strobel quietly commented, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, Templeton acknowledged. He's the most important thing in my life, he stammered. I, I, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learn from Jesus. Strobel was stunned. He listened in shock. He says that Templeton's voice began to crack. He then said, I miss him. And with that, the old man burst into tears while shaking. He wept bitterly, and waving his hand, he said, Enough of that. Templeton died a year later of Alzheimer's at 85 years old, just after he wrote a book called Farewell to God, describing the details of his journey to atheism. There is a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. And this story of Charles Templeton is alarming, as it should be, and it should serve as a wake up call for us as a Christian. The last thing that we want to be said of our lives is that we knew about Jesus, but that we didn't know him personally. Jesus wants us to know him intimately. And one, way, one great way to do this is to, to study him and draw near to him through a journey through one of the recorded gospels. The gospel of Mark will provide us with numerous opportunities to know him in a deeper and more abiding relationship. It's not often that you get to start a journey of this magnitude, and I think it's appropriate that we just take a moment to bow our heads and to pray and to steward what God has entrusted to us, and that's this opportunity on the Sundays through the weeks, months, and years ahead to go through this gospel together. Please pray with me. Father of mercy, you rejoice in your Son. It is in Him that you are well pleased, and you have voiced this. We pray as we enter into the gospel of Mark, that you will capture our hearts, that you allow us to see the depth and the riches that await as we study this testimony of scripture about his life. He is the suffering servant. He modeled what we all need to see. His life of sacrifice and giving all to carry out your will is something that can and should capture our hearts time and time again. Father, we pray that as we begin this study that you would enter into the deep recesses of our hearts and expose the areas of unbelief, expose the areas of doubt where we lack faith, where we do not trust, that you would allow us to fix our eyes and our gaze upon him who is our rock and refuge, the source of our faith. We pray that you'll use it in great measure. I pray as a a weak instrument in your hand that you'll use the, the might of your word and the power of your spirit to work in us and through us so that we can be changed radically by what we encounter in the gospel. May today mark the first step that we take in this journey. Would you burden our hearts to take this book that is 16 chapters long. And if we read just a couple chapters a day, two a day. That we can finish it over the course of a week in weekly reading. Would you help us to do that so that we can see the reality of Christ. That we can develop an intimate relationship a deep and abiding relationship with you, with him, and by your Spirit's grace. Again, we commit this time to you. We ask you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to begin our time by simply reading the first verse and then talk about the background of the book. The This is what the first verse says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1 in the NAS. It simply reads as follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The title is in your bulletin, and it's this. It's all about Jesus, an introduction to the gospel of Mark. And we're going to spend our time this morning answering one specific question that's already included in your notes. How does everything about the gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know him more intimately? To answer this question, we're going to go ahead and look at three answers, or I described them in your notes. We're going to look at three different angles that will allow us to answer this question. The first angle that we'll look at is the background of the book. And we'll take into consideration the author and the audience In which it was intended for. Angle number two is the beginning of the gospel. This is taken straight out of verse one. We're going to look at Mark's starting point. And then we're also going to draw an important distinction between the gospel accounts and the gospel message. In angle number three, we're going to look at the person of the gospel. And again, these three things are rooted right in our opening verse. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ Christ. We're going to talk about his name and his titles and how they can serve us as we look at them. As our title expresses so accurately, it is all about Jesus. Let's consider angle number one as we begin the background of the book that points us to Christ. Let's turn our attention first to the author. And by the author, I mean that the human agent that was used to record it. We all know, and being at, at a, a, a strong Bible-based church, we know who the author of Scripture is. 1 Peter 1.22 makes it clear, For no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Timothy 3.16 shares that all Scripture is literally God-breathed. Great verses to keep in mind as you witness and as you share to people who claim that the Bible is written by mere men. The Bible was authored by one person, the Holy Spirit. And though human agents were used to actually record it, God the Holy Spirit led them to write down what they wrote. The human agent that God used to record the Gospel of Mark, according to church tradition, And throughout church history was a man named John Mark. And I say church tradition and the testimony of the early church because nowhere in the gospel does John Mark assert himself as the writer. In fact, in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no writer even mentions their name. Theologians believe that this was done in a spirit of humility, as not to detract any of the attention and credit that so appropriately belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may also know that John Mark has two names. And this was quite common because John was a Hebrew name and Mark was a Latin name or a Greek name. In Jewish circles, he would have been uh, known as simply John. But in Gentile circles, he would have been known as Marcus, or the shortened English version of Marcus is Mark. So who is John Mark? And what do the scriptures tell us about him? You're going to be fascinated when you get familiarized with this man. And to provide a sketch of his life, we need to go to the book of Acts. And it's already been noted that Mark had a close connection with the apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 5.13, When describing Mark, Peter actually refers to him as my son. And so it's been said that it's very probable that John Mark came to faith under the preaching ministry of the apostle Peter. Peter was the prominent feature of the early church. And his preaching and evangelism in Jerusalem dominates the narrative in the early chapters of the book of Acts. In Acts 1.15, it opens up in the first chapter with Peter uh, and his leadership with 120 disciples. In Acts 2.14 is the infamous sermon that he preached at Pentecost where thousands came to repentance and faith in Christ. In Acts 9, we read the account of Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. Peter's mentioned some 74 times In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, but only once thereafter. Without warning, Peter then immediately fades from the scene because the ministry of the apostle Paul had taken preeminence. And we see this abrupt transition take place in Acts chapter 12. And I want to invite you to turn there because we're just going to survey these scriptures and see what we can understand about this guy, John Mark. Here's where things get really interesting. Earlier in Acts 12, we learned that John Mark is the nondescript son of a woman named Mary, mentioned in verse 12. And then in verse 25, we learned that Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Antioch and then to Cyprus at the beginning of chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 5, you'll notice that it describes John Mark merely as a helper, but notice what it says about him all the way down in verse 13 of chapter 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Mark left and went home. And the truth be told is that he, he deserted them. He took off and we don't have any of the details the text doesn't provide it but it was a pretty big deal because in a couple chapters from now we're going to see this interaction that takes place between Paul and Barnabas in chapter 15 and you can flip a few pages there to chapter 15 and starting in verse 36 it says this after some days Paul said to Barnabas let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. You want to talk about a great example of discipleship? Paul had gone through. He wanted to, he, Barnabas as an encourager. Paul says, Barney, let's go, man. Let's stop. Let's, let's go back and see how these brothers are doing in the Lord. In verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. Verse 39, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. And then we see that Paul picks uh, Cyrus and he ends up going to Syria and Cilicia to strengthen the churches. Basically, Barnabas wanted to get John Mark back on the ministry horse. And Paul had some real reservations about taking him with again. And it appears that it really troubled Paul that Mark jumped ship on the first missionary journey. Perhaps Mark lacked courage, strength, commitment. We we don't know the details. We don't receive any of them. But we do know this, that it led to Paul and Barnabas going different ministry directions to continue preaching the gospel and making disciples. With their departure to Cyprus, Barnabas fades from the narrative and in the account of Acts completely, and Mark is all but forgotten. And so you're left with this question, what becomes of the deserter? Does Mark continue in the ministry? Does he make a comeback? Or like Charles Templeton, would his faith be proven untrue? Would he go ahead and write a first century book on his journey towards atheism? Not hardly. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes about, about John Mark in Colossians 4, verses 10 and 11. He says this, and I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, about whom you received instruction... If he comes to you, welcome him. And also, Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. The book that John Mark would ultimately go on to write wasn't going to be on atheism. It was actually going to be on the gospel of Mark. And scholars believe that Mark wrote the account shortly after Peter's death. How does everything about the gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know him more intimately? It starts with the human agent that God used to record the account. He was a man who had a passion to serve Christ and other church leaders. The testimony of Mark's life should inspire us. God uses ordinary people who have very real struggles in the ministry. And if God was looking for perfect servants, the list would be three names long, and it would start and end with the Trinity. How is Mark described? In very humble terms. Scripture doesn't reveal that he was a preacher, or an evangelist, a miracle worker, or a prophet. Acts 13.5 described Mark as their helper an attendant, a lowly servant of missionary work. At the end of Philemon in verse 24, Paul describes him as a fellow worker. And in the very last letter that Paul would ever write, Second Timothy, Paul makes it a point in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Plain folks can be greatly used by God. And serving the Lord doesn't require some distinct talent. It just requires a distinct heart for the Lord. Don't underestimate what God can do with mere helpers. Are you useful to God and God's people? Are you willing to be a mere servant? If you are, only God knows what you might become. In fact, God blesses people who know that they are nothing and are willing to serve and work and be useful. D. Edmund Hebert writes, Although not gifted with outstanding abilities, Mark had proved himself a practical subordinate. Mark always appears in the position of subordinate. He contentedly devoted his energies to the service of others. His own greatness lay in his extraordinary gift of being the prop of truly great men. In the words of theologian Henry Barclay Sweet, he shared, Mark knew how to be invaluable to those who filled the first rank in the service of the church, and he proved himself to those a true servant of servants of God. The theme of the gospel of Mark is the suffering servant. And who better to record it than a faithful servant who also suffered on the mission field? This disciple of the Apostle Peter certainly would have heard Peter, Peter's reminders, as he shares in 1 Peter 5, to clothe yourself with humility. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, he says that directly to the young men. It would be John Mark clothed in humility so that he could literally write about the one who clothes believers with humility. Did John Mark fail in his first mission? He did. He did. But be encouraged because God can even use a deserter to record one of the greatest accounts ever written about the Lord Jesus Christ. Our 2nd subpoint is the audience. Regarding the place where Mark wrote this account, it's attested that he wrote the gospel in Rome. And in Mark 15, 21, he mentions Simon of Cyrene as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And this overly detailed bit of information makes sense because the intended audience of the book would have known Alexander and Rufus. In fact, Paul mentions Rufus in Romans 16.13 as being a member of the Roman church. And so this gives high probability that Mark wrote the gospel for the Christians in Rome where he was still serving. Almost all of the early church fathers attest to Mark having written this gospel while in Rome which means that the gospel was written mainly for, Gentile, uh, for a Gentile audience. And this is confirmed because Mark explains Jewish customs. We're going to see this when we make our journey through the book, that whenever it would come to a Jewish custom, he takes his time to explain it. And this would have been entirely unnecessary with the Jewish audience. Mark also uses a number of Latin terms in reference to their Greek equivalents. Apparently because, again, this would be more familiar to the Roman audience. And lastly, Mark rarely quotes from the Old Testament. There's only one, scholars agree that there's only one quote from the Old Testament, and you're going to see it in chapter 1, verse 2, which we get to study next Sunday. Well, knowing that Mark is writing to a Gentile Roman audience provides us with insight as to why and what God, the Holy Spirit, led Mark to record in this gospel account. Rome at the time was the most advanced city in the world. And the Roman Empire, led by Julius Caesar, was doing what? It was literally, it was just eating up real estate. Conquering country, neighboring country after country, just going through to take control. And all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ and the living organism of the church shows up on the scene. And the gospel begins spreading spiritually at about the same rate that the fires are spreading physically as the Roman Empire advances. And all of a sudden, the first verse of the gospel account from Mark would be written, and Roman Gentile believers would read these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One theologian writes, Read these words as a Roman Christian. Read these words as if you were sitting in the capital of the world. Read these words as though the most powerful man in the entire world is perhaps only a few kilometers away. Read these words as thousands follow the name of Caesar, as millions are under his rule. Read these words as nations are being conquered, crushed, and forced into slavery. Read these words... Words while it seems that the world is ruled by one man and one army. Read these words as if you watch with your own eyes the greatest apostle of all time lose his head to the sword of Caesar. Read these words as if you yourself are suffering in poverty. How does everything about the Gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we may know him more intimately? Clearly, the audience will be challenged by the person and work of Christ. Their allegiance to the true emperor, the true authority, the Lord of heaven and earth, will shake the very foundation of all that they have known to be true. And it's going to cost them everything. It will mean forsaking the false Roman deities. It will mean forsaking the worship of this so-called God, Julius Caesar. It will mean forsaking the pride of the Roman culture. They will need to cling to Christ and trust the Lord. Everything that they've known to be true is about to get flipped right on its head. Right on its head. And the gospel is going to advance in Roman territory. And the believers in Rome, there's, we're all familiar with the accounts where Christians were led into the arena before, before jeering crowds that were, were applauding as Christians were, were fed to the lions. So knowing the true and sovereign Savior intimately was going to help them stay focused during their times of sickness and suffering and great persecution. And the same is true for us. The same is true for us. He's our refuge. He's our rock. When the world throws the list, and I think that's a, a pretty... Good summary, sickness, suffering, or even death. Whatever the world can throw at us, knowing Christ intimately is where our protection is. Well, how does everything about the Gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know him more intimately? Having a firm grasp on the background of the book serves us well as we consider the author and audience. Angle number two is this, the beginning of the Gospel and this phrase, again, taken straight out of verse one, and this letter A in our first subpoint, it, it indicates this: the starting point. Mark does not start with the birth of Christ, but with the beginning of the ministry of good news. And if you see this, the wording there in the beginning, there's an echo right of the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis one one. And we also think about how the Gospel of John starts in the beginning, right? But none of this is pointing to the eternality of Christ. Rather, it's introducing for us and setting the stage for the good news about Jesus Christ. Mark is also not uh, using the term translated good news here as Paul uses it in all of its theological depth. He's using it as anyone who heard it for the first time would have understood the word, a message that is containing good news. And that is what the gospel means. It was a message announcing good news. It was first used regarding messengers who brought back word from the battlefield in the front lines. And the Romans would have been very familiar with this term. Why? Because the Greek word euangelion, which is good news, is what was coming back all the time as the Roman armies kept advancing and crushing and crushing their enemies. They would have been very familiar with this term. Caesar would have also been closely associated with this word as it was ultimately Caesar who was credited with having led Rome to victory. At the writing of the gospel, Rome is still climbing to the height of its power. It won't be for another 400 years before it collapses And Rome is this war machine conquering and consuming all in its path, including Israel. Israel, we know, was God's chosen people. A people destined to be the greatest nation upon the earth. A nation that, unlike any other, could trace its beginning all the way back to one man, Abraham. A man hand-chosen by God to begin a race of people who would be called out to live for the glory of God. All that is required of Israel can be explained by a simple look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 15. And time won't permit us to go read that account, but you can read these words at a later point, the words of Moses who describes and speaks to the people what they need to do before they enter the promised land. Israel could have had it all, but you know what they did? Instead, they put God to the test. And their history was one, basically, of brief obedience. Then they experienced great blessing. And then turning away to follow after idolatrous desires. And the consequences were devastating. God's promise to wipe them off the face of the earth would have been absolute. And he actually says that very thing in in verse 15 of chapter 6. But he was moved with compassion. Nonetheless, Israel was dominated. It started with King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 B.C., then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And at the time of Mark's writing, Israel had been ruled by foreign nations for over 500 years, and Rome still has 400 years of existence left. And yet, John Mark says, I have good news. I have good news about Jesus Christ. And what comes in the next 16 chapters really fleshes out that good news as Mark defines it here in verse 1, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not an announcement about Rome taking another country captive and and adding to their real estate or that Caesar had somehow obtained the status of God and he deserved to be worshipped. Nor was it anything to do with that. The good news pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ. Well, you'll notice in letter B of your outline, I have an important distinction that that we need to make, and I'll draw your attention to that if you'll look at it. Under letter B, it says the gospel accounts and then the gospel message. And for those who are young in the Lord, I, I recall this even as a young believer. You would hear people talk about the gospels, and then you would hear people talking about sharing the gospel, and it would, you would start. You'd be like, what, "What are they talking about?" So we need to read basically um, the account, right? Matthew, Mark, right to, to them. That's what they're they're talking about. And so it's 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 healthy for us to draw a distinction, and as it relates to the good news that's being talked about in this verse. The UN Galeon is actually uh, accounts for both. It talks about the, the person and work of Jesus Christ that's related to the gospel accounts, and that's how Mark introduces it. The good news could also, though, be referring directly to the gospel message, both fulfilled and unfulfilled. And I want to qualify that. If you go down in the first chapter of Mark, chapter 1, You'll see that Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. At that point in time, has the Lord Jesus Christ died? No. Has the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the grave and conquered death? No. He's not. It's an unfulfilled gospel. Right? But then, as after the resurrection, after those things occurred, then when we come to other parts of the canon, when we're later later in the New Testament, and we see a verse like Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a fulfilled gospel. It includes every aspect that has taken place. And so another di- distinction there, and we're going to cross that bridge a little bit more when we get to one fifteen and talk more about that. So I'm not going to take the time right now. But I, I want us to see something as it relates to this opening And introducing verse Everything about Jesus Christ Is good news His person, his work, his life His death, his resurrection Whether it's one of the four gospel accounts Written or whether it's The fulfilled and saving message of repentance And faith known as the gospel It's all about Jesus It's all about Jesus How does everything about the gospel of Mark Point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know him more intimately. Angle number one, the background of the book, points us to Christ. Angle number two, the beginning of the gospel, points us to the good news. Angle number three, the person of the gospel, is reflected in the Lord's name and title. How do each of the titles in this opening verse connect Jesus Christ to the message of the gospel? These titles are used throughout the four gospel accounts, but specifically how do they relate to the message of faith and repentance known as the gospel message. And really this is going to be a great opportunity as we reflect on these terms to prepare our hearts for communion at the end of the service. No, really, I'm convinced, and this, again, is the Lord orchestrating this. um, Nothing that I could do in my own wisdom, believe me, those who know me, and are getting to know me, you know I don't, I don't have that much forethought as, as it relates to planning things like this. But let's talk about uh, the, the, first, the, the first name that we see, Jesus, which literally means Savior. It's the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It's given to our Lord because he saves people from their sins. It's his special role. He saves his people from the guilt of sin by cleansing them in his atoning blood. He saves his people from the dominion of sin by putting the Holy Spirit within us, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He saves his people from the presence of sin when he takes them out of this world. And he's going to do that. Eventually, we're all going to be out of this world and we will rest eternally in him. And he also saves his people from all the consequences of sin, or will save us from all the consequences of sin when he gives us our glorified body in an eternal state. J.C. Ryle had this to say, Jesus is a name which is especially sweet and precious to believers. It has often done them good. It has given them what money cannot buy, that is, inward peace, It has eased their wearied consciences and given rest to their heavy hearts. The Song of Solomon describes the experience of many when it says, Your name is oil poured forth. Happy is the person who trusts not merely in the vague notion of God's mercy and goodness, but in Jesus. The name Jesus is actually used 111 times throughout the Gospel of Mark. And every time that we see it, it, it is, it's healthy to, to remind what that name stands for. What that name means. He is the Savior. How does everything about the Gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we know him more intimately? The transition takes place in our life. This is so important to see. The transition takes place in your life when you make the move, and and God, through, through the work of His Spirit within a person, leads them to the transition that it's no longer about knowing about the Savior, but that He becomes my Savior. He's mine. He's mine. And He's yours. If you know him personally, if you have, through prayer and through faith, come to him and initiated that relationship with him and said, I trust in you, Lord Jesus, and I'm not just treating you like a rabbit's foot. I'm not just wanting um, my, my life to work out, and I heard that if I hang out with you and I go to church that things are going to somehow just be all right. They'll be, they'll be good. We'll be cool like that. It's not how it works. He doesn't want to simply be part of our life. And you've heard this shared before. He wants to be the point of our life. He's everything. He's everything. When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he even reminds us in his own words that we, we even need to hate ourselves. We need to hate the reality of who we are without him. We hate. I listen. Listen, I hate who I am. I hate who I am except for Christ and and His work, and and the work that He does. I, I th- th- it's got to be true of us when we know Him. He is everything to us. He saves us eternally from sin's penalty when it warrants eternal damnation. He saves us practically by giving us victory over the power of sin in our daily lives, by providing us with the ways of escape from the presence of sin. He saves us from our impatience. He saves us from our selfishness. He saves us from our independence. He saves us from our hardness of heart. He saves us from our foolishness and our pride. Envy, strife, and on and on the sinless goes how do we look to christ daily for our salvation the second word listed as subpoint b in your outline is the word christ which comes from the greek word christos meaning anointed one or chosen one and this is the greek equivalent of the hebrew word mashiach which is messiah and jesus is, of course, the Lord's human name given by Mary, by the angel Gabriel in Luke one thirty one, but Christ is his title. And it signifies Jesus as sent from God to be king and deliverer. And it literally means the anointed one, the chosen one. And in ancient Israel, when someone was given a position of authority... We see this with the the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. They anointed them with oil so that they would be set apart for God's service. It happened with kings and priests and prophets who were anointed in such a fashion. It was a symbolic act to indicate God's choosing. Although the literal meaning of anointed refers to the application of oil, we know that it doesn't always involve or have to involve oil to be consecrated because we see an example of that in Hebrews 1.9. There are Hundreds of prophetic messages in the Old Testament that point to this Messiah, this Christos, this anointed one who would deliver his people. And we all know and are very familiar that Israel had a different idea of what the Messiah and the anointed one was going to do when he came. And that it was going to be a freedom from oppression and, and it was going to be an earthly kingdom that they were going to be focused on. Part of that's going to be true during the millennial reign when Christ comes and rules again. But in his first advent, that's not what he came to do. The anointed one came to deliver from the power and the penalty from sin. And the Bible says Jesus was anointed with oil two times uh, by, t- uh, by uh, two different women, once in Matthew 26, another in Luke 7. But the most significant anointing came by the Holy Spirit, which we're told about in Acts 10.38, where it says, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus' title of Christ means he's God's anointed one. The one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies. The chosen Savior who came to rescue sinners, as Paul so appropriately said in 1 Timothy 1.15. To whom he claimed to be the chief of all sinners. Jesus came to rescue the King of Kings who's coming back. And again, who's going to set up his earthly kingdom, according to Zechariah 14.9. Well, the third reference, which is letter C in your outline... Uh, of the person of the gospel that would rattle the Roman Empire is perhaps the strongest. Not only is Jesus the Savior, not only is he the anointed one, now scripture affirms that he is the Son of God. Throughout the gospel of Mark, we're going to study different accounts that testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Not only do we see an introduction to it right here in our very first verse, but in Mark 3.11 it says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him they would fall down before him and shout you are the son of god in mark 5 jesus encounters a demon possessed man and the demon responds by saying and shouting with a loud voice he said what business do we have with each other jesus son of the most high god and the testimony isn't just from evil demons and spirits in Mark 15.39, it says this about a soldier who was standing at the foot of the cross when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The expression, the Son of God, literally means the Son of God the Son of God. It's what it means. And in the infamous passage of Matthew 16, Jesus actually, apart with his disciples, what did he do? He, he took them aside and he says, who do people say that I am? He's testing the waters. Who, wh- what are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Some a prophet, some Elijah, some John the Baptist. They they, they knew something about Jesus, or they had heard something about this Jesus. And then he makes the transition. And he turns and he looks directly at them in their eyes, and he says, and he asks this question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we know the answer. Peter responds And he says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed how blessed Peter was to make this confession. Why? Why? Because it proved that Peter didn't just simply know about Jesus. It proved what Christ would have each and every one of us see, that he knew him. He knew him personally. In a deep and abiding way, he knew Christ. How does everything about the gospel of Mark point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we'll know him more intimately? Angle number one. The background of the book points us to Christ through the author and the, uh, and the audience. Angle number two, the beginning of the gospel points us to the good news. And angle number three, the person of the gospel in name and title reveals the very nature of who Jesus Christ is. The son of God. May the gospel of Mark, as we preach through it, be used in great measure, church so that we become intimately acquainted with who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to pray, and the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to transition to our time of communion, which is so appropriate, considering all that we've just seen and the focus on the Savior. But I want you to prepare your hearts, and it starts really earlier in, in, in the week, and just want to share that communion is a special celebration for Christians. And if you're here as a guest with us today and you don't know um, whether or not you're a believer or, or maybe somebody's just invited so that you you would hear, hear the gospel, we just ask that you would allow this celebration to pass you by and that you could just witness what takes place. Because Even though it's a celebration, there's a level of seriousness that comes with it. Let's pray and ask God to bless this celebration. Heavenly Father, we rejoice with you in the work of your Son. And we thank you for all that he stands for in both name and title. And yet you would have us draw near to you through him. There is but one mediator between God and man. It is Christ Jesus. And it's because of him that we have direct access to you. It's because we've been redeemed. It's because you've brought us to the place where we hate who we are without you. and that having a right understanding of you has changed everything. That your son is now the point of our lives in discipleship, in the growth of the church, in evangelism, in outreach. Everything that we do is from him and through him and for him, just as your word tells us. And Father, these are exciting times for us as a church just as we enter into the study of this glorious gospel account. We thank you for John Mark and how you used him. We thank you for persevering him and preserving him so that he could record this. We pray, Father, that now as we come to this table of communion, that you would allow our hearts to be focused on you as well. Allow us to remove the distractions of anything around us, even the the person next to us, but that we would be focused just simply on you And that we would acknowledge our sinfulness. And that we would come to you for cleansing. That we would confess our sins just as we learned in Psalm 32. That we would have our feet washed. That we would be made new and be renewed in the righteousness that we could never merit on our own. And so Father, we just commit this time to you. We're excited to see how you use it. We want to celebrate the name above all names king of kings we ask you to bless our time in Jesus name amen